You're listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor George Willis, which is from the sermon series, The Bible Tells Me So. For more information, you can visit our website at www.creekside.org. We are going to get right in it because I'm going to be super upfront with you all. What I have for you this morning is jam-packed. You may have realized that by the amount of time you hung out in the courtyard, all fighting for a flamethrower to stay warm, um, and having conversations of, man, he must be going long. Truth is, I did, and I'm probably going to do, do that again in a minute. But what, what, we, what we have for you is so packed with, I think, life-changing information when, when it comes to God's Word. Um, it's good to see you all. It's good, good to be seen, I guess. <laughs> and I want to welcome you to the first Sunday of our 40 days in the Word. We're starting this week. We're kicking it off. We have a number of different uh, Creekside small groups taking place throughout the week, and we're all going to be focused on the same thing, learning how to better understand the Word of God, because that's what it is all about. We have been praying, we have been planning, we have been processing, we have been preparing for this for a while, and I'm anticipating some amazing, good God things. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> this next six weeks, I believe, are going to change your life. I think during the next 40 days, your life either will change or have an opportunity to change. And some of you be going, well, how is it going to change? Why is it going to change? Great question. Let me answer that one. Uh, I want to answer that question by directing you to guest services, because if you have questions about 40 days in the Word and what's involved, I'd love for you to see my friend, Diane Quigley. She's one half of the Quigs. And... Uh, She'd be more than happy to give you some more information about 40 Days. She's an amazing team member and a really cool person. Now, the heart of 40 Days in the Word is going to be what we do in our small groups. It's not just on Sunday morning, but the real heartbeat of what we do through this campaign for the next six weeks is going to be through our small groups. We're going to be looking at some of the material that will challenge us and encourage us through are small groups. I mean, it's one thing to learn it on your own. You can only go so far, but when you're in a group with other people to help and support and to spur you on, you're going to learn how to unlock the Word of God for yourself so you're not dependent on me or, you know, somebody else uh, to do that for you. It's also going to help you not have to say, well, hey, dude, that, you know, that's just your interpretation of what God's saying. Because you're going to learn how to interpret the Word of God for yourself. You're going to learn how to feed yourself spiritually. So obviously, uh, you're going to want to get into a small group if you haven't yet and be part of that. If you're not in one yet, you can still jump in today. You can go to our guest services and you can sign up for a group and they'll let you know uh, what steps to take to uh, get involved. Now, I'm very, I'm very excited because we have so many people in our church already signed up for new groups, and I think that's fantastic. And I want to say to those who are hosting the group, thank you. Thank you for putting the time in. Thank you for putting the effort in to leading a small group of individuals who want to know the Word of God better. Because like I said, 
We all know it's a challenge to learn as much if you are not in a small group because that's the heart of who we are and what we're doing over the next six weeks. In the Bible studies, through the video lessons that we get to watch together, and, and the small group curriculum, the workbook, we're going to be doing all of this together. And again, like I said, that's the first part. The second part is the Sunday messages. Six Sunday messages, like the one today, that I hope you're here to hear, here to hear, here to hear. Yeah, I hope that you are physically present to hear throughout all six weeks. Now, let's dig in. You ready to dig in? Say, I'm ready. Like I said, I, I warned you up front, there's some content here. We're going to be talking about some things. I hope you got caffeinated coffee today. And I know how it gets warm in this room and we get relaxed and the drone of my voice kind of, you know, okay. Oh, is it lunchtime? Uh, you're going to want to take notes. I'm just warning you up front. We'll just buckle in. We're going to be here a minute. The Bible is one of the most read books in all of history. Would you agree? The Bible is one of the most read books in all of history. It is the best-selling book in all of history. It's the most translated book in all of history. Why is it the Word of God? How do we know it's the Word of God? We're going to look at, at, at all of that today as we start. The first verse I want to bring to your attention is 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says this, and read it with me, the underlying part. All Scripture is God-breathed. How many parts of Scripture? All scripture is God, and it is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And we're going to talk about that as we go through the next six weeks and dig into that a little more. So uh, it goes on to say, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, heads up. I'm going to be throwing, you, you could turn that timer off. Uh, I'm going to be throwing at you some Bible uh, verses that you're going to want to take notes. I hope you guys have your uh, note sheet. We're going to look back at this verse again in, in the next week, but I want you to look at that phrase again. All scripture is God breathed. All scripture. Note that word, that all scripture is God breathed. Note that word, God breathed. That word in Greek, it, it, it means this literal breath of God. The literal breath, and it's, it's God, it's all Scripture is God-breathed. The Bible is God-breathed. So what does that mean? Some translations say that Scripture is inspired, but we're not talking about an inspiring writer writing an inspiring book. We're talking about how God inspired this book, that the Bible is God-breathed. Right now, you're listening to the breath of George Willis, unfortunately. You're, you're listening to my breath because what is my voice? It, it, it's made up. It's made up of breath coming you know, out of my lungs through my vocal cords, right? Vibrating those vocal cords and coming out as sound. If I didn't have any breath, guess what? I wouldn't have a voice. So the breath of George Willis is the word of George, George, George Willis. I'm just keeping you on your toes. The, the word of George, and it's, it's the voice of George Willis. And the Bible says that God's word is God's very breath. It's not just a good idea. 
It is God's word to you and I. And as a result of that, Psalm 119 tells us that all of your commands can be trusted. All scriptures God breathed. Psalmist said that all of your commands can be trusted. Everything in the Bible can be trusted as true because it comes from God. Everything in the Bible can be trusted as true because it comes from God. See, it's one thing for the Bible to claim that it's the word of God. It's also one thing for the Bible to say it can be trusted. But how do I know really? How do I know for sure that the Bible can be trusted? How do I know that this is the word of God and just you know, not a bunch of fables or cute stories or, you know, that have been put together. And that's a valid, that's a legitimate, and that's a very important question that we need to ask before we start studying the Bible. How do I know I can trust it? How do I know I can trust the Bible? This morning, we're going to settle this issue because there are incredible proofs, incredible evidences, and facts that you need to know that will help you make up your mind. Because we all know, and most of us believe, that facts, I I hope, facts are important. Facts are important. So you're not making up your mind based on what you have heard other people say but what the Bible actually claims for itself along with what history and science and all these other things teach us about the Bible. We're going to start off 40 Days in the Word focused on this question. How do I know I can trust the Bible? How do I know I can really trust it? I'm going to give you seven reasons, and I want you to write down this first one. How do I know I can trust the Bible? I can trust the Bible because it is historically accurate. It's historically accurate. For that reason, I know I can trust the Bible. The Bible isn't just doctrinally correct. The Bible is just not theologically correct. It's it's not just accurate regarding morals and regarding ethics. It's true history. True history. Real people, real places, real time. It's true historically. Why is that important for us to get a grip on today? Because the Bible tells us this, that God cannot lie. God can't lie. Now, a lot of people ask this question, especially in my years in youth ministry, can, is there anything that God can't do? Like, can, can God really create a pizza so big that he can't even eat it? And I'd say, yeah, there's a lot of things that God cannot do. God cannot deny himself. God cannot not be God. God cannot tell a lie. So there's a lot of things that God can't do. But why, cannot God, why can God not tell a lie? Because God is truth. God is truth. In fact, the Bible says this in Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to do what? To lie. Because why? God, the only reason the universe works is because God is a God of truth. Which means, you know, 
stuff is true all the time. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His truth remains the same. Can you imagine, for instance, if the law of gravity only worked on Tuesdays and Thursdays? That'd be pretty weird, wouldn't it? But the laws of physics are true. God thought them up. He created them. The laws of math, mathematics are true. God created the laws of mathematics on which the universe runs. So God cannot lie. If, if the Bible, if this book has one lie in it, if it has just one lie in it, no matter how big or small, it's not a godly book. It's not a book of God because God cannot lie. The psalmist said in, in chapter 33, verse 4, that the word of the Lord is right and true. That's not only true and right about salvation. It's true and right about history. So how do we know? Because now you're probably wondering, how do, we, how do I really know that the Bible is historically accurate? I got some content for you. But the same way that you know any other history is accurate you go by the test of good history. For instance, one of the ways you test good history is, is it from eyewitness accounts? An historian would say, is this written down by someone who actually saw it with their own eyes? Or is it second or third hand, or is it a legend written down, you know, 100 years later after this allegedly took place? But you have to remember that the Bible is comprised of primarily eyewitness accounts. That's why it's good history. See, Moses was there when the Red Sea was parted. Joshua was, was there when the walls of Jericho fell. The disciples of Jesus sat in the upper room and saw the resurrected Jesus appear. And then they wrote it down. They wrote down what happened. And we read about it today. Matthew was there. He wrote it down. John was there. He wrote it down. Peter was there. And he told a guy by the name of Mark, and he wrote it down in the gospel of Mark. And then Luke, Luke talked to all of them, including Jesus' mother. He was right there with her, and he heard about what happened. So it's eyewitnesses or eyewitness accounts of what actually took place. The other test of good history by which we know the Bible is accurate is extreme care in which the Bible was copied over and over and over again. You, you, made, you may have heard people say, yeah, listen, dude, I, I'm sure it was right when it was first written, but it's been passed down from generation after generation. All these changes probably have come in. Like it had, it had to have been transposed, right? I mean, have you ever heard someone say that? I mean, if you've heard that, you know somebody just hasn't taken the time to actually study it, to look into it. Because when you look into it, you find, you find out the extreme care in which the Bible was copied from one place to another. The Old Testament copyists, uh, better known as the scribes, they had a specified number of columns throughout the document, so the copies would always be exactly the same. And the length of those columns always had to be from 40 to 60 in length. And it had to be exactly 30 letters wide. 
To make sure that it was always right and accurate, they had this rule that you had to copy letter by letter, not word by word. Letter by letter. Like, it's, it's kind of like, you know, on your, how, many, how many of you guys text, right? And you're texting somebody something, and that uh, um, predictive text kind of rears its ugly head and puts in a word that you didn't intend to write, and you send it off, and then you get a text response back on, what are you saying? And you wish you didn't send it. They, it was kind of like that. They wanted to make sure that that didn't take place. They didn't just want to mindlessly copy from scroll to scroll. So they would only copy letter by letter. And they went by these tests to make sure that it was accurate, that it was right when they copied it. They knew in a, in a book how many letters of the alphabet were in each book down to the letter. For instance, our letter A. If we took our letter A, they would know that there are 1,653 A's in this book. And if they, if they, had, if they came up with 1,654 A's when they counted, they would know it's wrong and they would throw the scroll away and redo it. Start over. They were so exact they knew the middle letter of the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Pentateuch. They knew the middle letter of the whole entire Old Testament. And after they copied all of this, they would go to that middle letter. And what would they do? They would count forward and backwards on either side of that letter. And if it didn't come out exactly to the number it should, they would throw it away and they would start over. That's how exact they were when they copied the Bible. Another proof is archaeology. You look at archaeology and it proves again and again that the places and the people and all that the Bible talks about, all that we read about, are true. It's not fiction. It's truth. You can go and find these places today. You know why? Because we've dug them up. Not me, not we, but some people smarter than us have dug them up. The theater where Paul was in, you know, at, in Athens, there, where there was a riot. You know how we know that that's accurate? Because it's been dug up. We can see them today. The pool of Siloam where the blind man was healed and we could see portions of Herod's temple. All of these places that are talked about in the Bible, they've been dug up. We can see them with our own eyes today. The book of Acts is all about historical accuracy. Luke, a historian, as well as a doctor, he wrote the book of Acts. He talks about 54 cities, 39 countries, and nine different islands with complete historical accuracy. One of the great things about how archaeology works with the Bible is how it's again and again shown that actually the Bible is more accurate than a lot of our ideas of history. There have been many times when we've had an idea of what is historical and said the Bible, you know, what the Bible says about this has to be wrong. It's just not right. And the Bible has proved itself to be right. For instance, a long time, uh, for a long time, historians said 
We're not really sure that that guy Solomon lived in the Old Testament, and we're certainly sure he didn't have horses like it talked about. Because they only had camels back in Solomon's day. They didn't have horses. So that can't be right. Until one day they discovered Solomon's chariots in one of the cities with thousands of stables for horses. So again, the, the Bible was proved right. One of the greatest examples of that is the empire called the Hittites. And I don't know if you're familiar with Old Testament, but it talks about the Hittites. There's this whole empire called the Hittites talked about in the Bible that was not talked about anywhere else. You couldn't hear a discussion about it anywhere else. For centuries, historians said that the Bible just made up the story of the Hittites, that it's not factual. Until the early 1900s, a professor by the name of uh, Hugo Winkler discovered, now I'm going to try and pronounce, I got a few names that I'm going to have a hard time pronouncing. I'm just being up front with y'all. It's Bo, it discovered at Bogaskoy. Ring a bell with anybody? Google it. B-O-G-A-Z-K-O-Y. Until they discovered in, in, in that location 10,000 clay tablets at the capital of the Hittites. Now, everyone believes, everyone believes in the Hittites. In fact, if, if you got time during this wonderful Super Bowl game this afternoon, maybe during halftime when Rihanna's getting her, doing her thing, maybe you should, you know, Google the empire of the Hittites or check out Wikipedia if you have some time and read about the Hittites. See, not only the Bible is historically accurate, it also, it's also scientifically accurate. And that's the second reason if you're taking notes. The Bible is scientifically accurate. There's so much misunderstanding about this in the world that I want to spend a little bit of time together on this point because people who think the Bible is scientifically inaccurate either A, A, never really studied the Bible or B, they probably don't know science. Because the truth is, God himself set up the laws of science and he made sure that his word does not contradict the law of science. The Bible wasn't given, and, and, and this is obvious, the Bible wasn't given to be a, a scientific textbook. You're, you're not going to study the Bible to build a rocket. And the Bible doesn't use scientific language. But the Bible never, never, never gives bad science. It just doesn't. Not once in over 1,600 years in which this book was written does it give bad science. In fact, it always, it's always ahead of science. There are things in the Bible the Bible says were true that we've just discovered 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago. Johannes Kepler He's a famous mathematician and astronomer. He said this, science is simply thinking God's thoughts after him. In other words, God established the laws of physics and then we discover them. God established the laws of biology and guess what? We 
discover them. God established the laws of mathematics, and we discover them. One of the reasons why we know the Bible can be trusted is because it's scientifically accurate. And the reason it's accurate is because the laws of the universe were invented by God. So he obviously understands them, even if we don't. Because for thousands of years, we've misunderstood a few different things that I'd like to highlight for you. One thing about truth is truth never changes. One thing about science is science consistently or constantly changes. Truth doesn't change. Science, Science constantly changes. I mean, you probably know this like I do. There's little more worthless uh, than an obsolete science book. You know that, and I guarantee that science book that you had in the third grade is not being used in the third grade today. A lot of things in that book are no longer believed or even taught. Think about the value, just the value of a five-year-old computer book. I mean, you can find them at garage sales, but nobody ever wants them. Because things get out of date so fast. Science, you know, things that we thought, that we believed, once we know more about it, what happens? That science changes. In medical science, it happens all the time. My wife, about a year and a half ago, broke her ankle. And she had a doctor that worked with a surgeon that surgically repaired my Achilles tendon. So I'm, you know, flexing my spiritual gift of chit-chat. You know that sarcasm, which is another spiritual gift I have. (laughs) And I'm I'm talking to her surgeon going, hey, is Dr. So-and-so still here? He's the one that repaired my my Achilles tendon and he did my surgery. And he's all, oh, yeah, yeah, he, you know, I don't think he was there anymore. But when I said this is what he did and how he did it and whatever... Kristen Surgeon says, yeah, no, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> we don't use that method anymore. Now, because we, we now know it's best to allow the tendon to heal on its own. I'm like, great, I got old science. <laughs> How many articles have you read that say that something you thought was good for you now causes you cancer? How, how many... You know, or stuff they said that is safe for a good pre- or safe or good for a pregnant woman to take. Now, ten years later, they're saying, "Don't do it. Don't take it." Science constantly changes. If you ever been to Paris, you know the world famous art museum called the Louvre, world class library. In the Louvre, there, in the Louvre's library, there's one section that has a three and a half mile, three and a half miles of obsolete science books. Obsolete science books. Three and a half miles because stuff that they thought was scientifically fact for 1,500 or 1,500 years ago was disproven 1,000 years later. What we thought 1,000 years ago was disproven 750 years you know, years ago. What we thought was fact for 25 or 25 years ago was disproven 10 years ago. And what we thought was accurate in fact 10 years ago is different today. 
If you're reading the Bible a thousand years ago or 700 years ago or 500 years ago, what the Bible said or what the Bible says would not have matched the science of that day because the science wasn't up to date. God understands stuff even when we don't. And his rules don't change. The Bible says this in Psalm 148, let every created thing, that's a whole universe, everything in the universe, every created thing, give praise to the Lord for he issued his command. See, God set the rules in motion. God set the rules in motion. His laws of thermodynamics, the laws of physics, God, God put all that into motion. And it goes on to say, and they came into being he established him forever and ever, and his orders will never be revoked. The second law of thermodynamics doesn't work today and then like not work tomorrow. It always works because it was true and it, it's made by God. Truth doesn't change. Science does. For instance, you guys, you guys know the earth is flat, right? But listen, for thousands and thousands of years, that's what people believed, that the earth was flat. It wasn't until, uh, until Coper, uh, Con, Con, I got to get these names, Copernicus, I got it, thank you, Galileo, two for two, and Columbus, three for three, yes. It wasn't until those three dudes did their thing that people realized that the world was not flat. It was actually round. That it's a sphere. It's a ball. Not flat. So knowing that, wouldn't you expect the Bible, you know, wouldn't you expect the Bible to say that the earth was flat because it was in existence and being written during those thousand years where everybody believed that the earth was flat? Shouldn't it be in the Bible? Wouldn't you expect it to be in the Bible? But the reality is not a single verse in the Bible says that the earth is flat. In fact, it says the exact opposite. More than 2,500 years ago, 2,500 years ago, God said this in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 22. He said, God is enthroned above the sphere on the earth. Thousands of years ago, the Bible says the earth is round. What is a sphere? sphere. It's a, it's a ball. It's round. Long before anybody knew it, when that was written, nobody believed it, but God said it and it was true, whether anybody believed it or not. Did you know that for thousands of years, people believed that the earth had to be held up by something? No. Listen, depending on the culture you were, you were in, you got certain beliefs on exactly what held up the earth. For instance, if you were Greek, in Greek culture, you believed that the world was held up by a giant named Atlas. So he held the earth on his shoulder and he had, does that pose ring a bell for anybody? Do I look, do I look like it? Yeah. We've heard of Atlas. You, you probably heard of Atlas and seen pictures. Atlas held up our world. Part of the Bible is written in Greek, but Atlas is never mentioned anywhere. 
Think about that for a second. Part of the Bible is actually written in Greek, but Atlas isn't mentioned. Why? Because it's not true. So it's not in the Bible. But again, you would expect during that time when the Bible was being written, and this is what people believed, it would have found its way into the Bible. For thousands of years, the Hindus believed that the earth sat on the back of giant elephants. And when the elephants would move, that's what would cause earthquakes. And the giant, and the, the, you know, they believed, if you don't believe, consult the oracle of Google and read about this stuff. They also believe that the giant elephant stood on the back of a giant sea turtle, and it gets better. And the giant sea turtle uh, stood on the back of a giant sea serpent who swam through the cosmic sea. This was the prevailing attitude in the world for hundreds, if not thousands of years. It's not in the Bible, even though the Bible was being written during this time. Why? Because the Bible leaves out the lies. I think you're kind of getting a, an idea of what I'm talking about here, right? Listen, the Bible tells us that Moses was schooled. He was highly educated. He was skilled and he was schooled in all of the wisdom of the ancient Egyptians because Moses was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. So what, did, what happened? He went to the best schools. He got the best education in all of Egypt. And he was taught what was the prevailing science of that day. The Egyptians were flat out brilliant. They built the pyramids. They were masters of architecture. They, they were masters at engineering and astronomy. But the ancient Egyptians were dead wrong on what held up the earth. Because ancient Egypt believed that the earth was held up by five pillars. And certainly Moses would have known this because he was schooled in that science because he went to the best schools of the land of Pharaoh, his adopted grandfather. Yet not once in Scripture, in all of what Moses said, do you find that the earth is held up by pillars? Why? Because it's not true. So it didn't make it into the Bible. The prevailing science of that day didn't end up in the Bible. In fact, the oldest known writing to man is likely the book of Job. It's the oldest literature in existence today, in existence today that we know of, the book of Job. Job was the first book written in the Bible, not Genesis. And by the way, the, the, the books of the Bible are not written in actual chronological order. There are Bibles that do that, which is fun to read, but they're in the standard Holy Bible, they're not written in chronological order. So Job is the, the oldest book. And in Job 26, 7, it says, the, and this is the oldest literature known in, human, in the human race. It says this, God stretches the sky over empty space and hangs the earth on what? Nothing. Nothing. Who told Job this? You know, how did Job know this? Everybody else, you know, knows the earth is flat. And it's sitting on the back of a man, giant, or elephants. Why? Why is it not in the Bible? Because the Bible, only the Bible, tells, always tells the truth. Only the Bible always tells the truth. Another example. For years, it was accepted science that there were about a thousand stars in the universe. 
and that they could be counted. In fact, 150 years B.C., a man named... You know, I, I practice these names before I come up and speak. And I get to speak and, and they get to leave in the pronunciations of these names. So it's, uh, I'm going to spell it for you and you can pronounce it however you want. H-I-P-P-A-R-C-H-U-S. Hipparchus? We're going to call him Hipparchus. Anyway, here's what this dude did. He counted the stars, and he wrote the very famous dissertation saying that there were only 1,022 stars in the sky. No more, no less. Not just in the sky, but in the entire universe. Hipparchus (laughs) said, there's only 1,020, that's it. And it was accepted as fact for a long time that there were only 1,022 stars in the entire universe. But it doesn't say that in the Bible. Then 300 years later, in 150 AD, a guy named Ptolemy does it again. He says, hey, everyone, this guy, Hipparchus, not only can you not say his name, but he's a nut. And there are actually 1,026 stars in the universe. This dude found four more stars. But what do we know today? We know that they're still finding galaxies. I read an article recently said that the number, in, uh, the number of stars in the universe is infinite. And it is widely accepted today that there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on planet Earth. The stars today simply cannot be counted. That wasn't known in 150 BC or 150 AD. It was accepted that there were only 1,026 stars. And yet, 2,600 years later, or 2,600 years ago, the Bible, God said this in Jeremiah 33, 22. Do we have it up on screen? The number of the stars are what? I guess Ptolemy, he didn't read the Bible, and neither did anyone else for a thousand years, but there it is. There it is, because it is true, and it's always true. I mean, we can go into a lot of different areas. We can go into biology. We can go into chemistry, right? I can show you what the Bible says about chemistry. We can look into medicine. Have you ever heard of bloodletting? I mean, for many years, people believed that too much blood in your body actually made you sick. For thousands of years, this was an accepted custom. Doctors would actually cut a sick person and bleed them, thinking that it was going to make them healthy. That, that, that was accepted science. Everybody knew that, you know, it was true. But it wasn't. But everybody believed it was, it was true science. Nobody believes that anymore. But for 2,000 years, that was accepted truth. They thought bloodletting got the bad stuff out of our bodies. Many people don't know that our first president, George Washington, 
was killed by doctors bleeding him to death. See, George Washington had a heart problem. And the doctors didn't know what to do, so they used the common science of the day and bled George Washington. He didn't get well so, you know, for a few days, so they did it again. And, then, and they bled him again. And a few days later, they did it a third time, and he died from blood loss. Today, we know that you give people blood when they're sick. We do the exact opposite of what they did for thousands of years. You give people blood because we know it's the life source. The life source of, of our, you know, it is in the blood. And good blood makes people feel better. That's where life comes from. It's called a blood transfusion. We give people blood today, but they didn't know, they didn't know that for thousands of years. But the Bible knew it. The Bible knew it. In fact, back in Leviticus, thousands and thousands of years ago, Leviticus 17, 11 said, and God said this, the life of every creature is where? In its blood. How did Moses know that? We didn't even know that blood circulates around, uh, uh, circulates in our bodies till around 1650. It wasn't until the 17th century when William Harvey discovered that blood actually moves around in our body. It circulates. No one knew that the heart pumped blood. They just thought it was, you know, it was a source of heat. Yet thousands of years ago, the Bible says the, the life of every creature is in its blood. They should have just read the Bible. Saved a lot of lives. During the Middle Ages, there was this thing called the bubonic plague. The bubonic plague killed one-fourth of Europe. One out of every four people died during the plague because we didn't understand germs. We didn't understand contagion. We didn't understand infection. We didn't understand transmission. And we didn't understand quarantining, or quarantining people. But I'd venture to say that we do understand that now. <laughs> Maybe. So they had, they had people with the bubonic plague who were contagious sleeping right next to a healthy person. And people just kept getting sick and dying because we didn't know about germs and contagion and transmission. So it became an epidemic and then it formed into a pandemic. They should have read the Bible because thousands and thousands of years before the bubonic plague, God said in Leviticus 13.4, put an infected person in quarantine for seven days. That's thousands of years before we even knew what germs were. God was saying, here's how you take care of people who are getting infected with an illness. You put them outside of the camp for seven days. If they're still sick, he says in the next verse, keep them, out for, uh, keep them out there for another seven days. Nobody understood quarantining because nobody understood germs. But God was right. 
I could go on and on. The Bible always scientifically proves. It's, it's, the Bible is always scientifically accurate, and it's, it's ahead, always ahead of science. The Bible says this in Proverbs 35, 30, verse 5. Every word of God is flawless. Every word of God is flawless. My words aren't flawless. Yours aren't. Human beings aren't. But every word of God is flawless. It's not only flawless. The psalmist said this in 12.6. The words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay with, and purified seven times. Husbands, I know your wives are wishing that you would speak like that with refined speak. Because often, here's what happens to us. Our mouths get in gear before our minds get engaged. And we say words that are 100% flawed. But God's words are flawless. Flawless. So we know we can trust the Bible because it's historically accurate. It's scientifically accurate. And the third thing, if you're taking notes, write this down. We know we can trust the Bible because it's prophetically accurate. It's prophetically accurate. What does that mean? Great question. It means that the predictions of the Bible always come true. The predictions of the Bible always come true. The Bible is filled with literally thousands and thousands of prophecy where God says this thing is going to happen at such and such time in such and such a way. And over all of the centuries, thousands of these prophecies have already been fulfilled. Every one of them exactly as God said. And some of them are still yet to be fulfilled. There are over 300 prophecies in the Bible about Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah, up to a thousand years before he was born. And over a thousand year period, 300 prophecies said things like this. This is when he'll be born. This is where, where he'll be born. This is how he'll be born. See, you can't control that if you're trying to make yourself Messiah. Like, you know, if he comes showed, hey, I'm going to be Messiah. You can't control where you're going to be born. You can't control how you're going to be born. He goes on to say, this is how he's going to die. This is the manner in which he'll die and what he'll die from. Over 300 prophecies about the Messiah, Jesus. Think with me. What are the odds of someone making, a, making 300 uh, predictions about you? 300 predictions about you and every single one of them coming true. What are the odds of that? I mean, the, I think the odds are so astronomical, you couldn't write that number down. It, it takes more faith to believe it was all just a coincidence than to believe that God himself planned it. It takes enormous faith to believe it's just all some random happenstance. Enormous faith that, to believe that there's no designer and no creator. A thousand years before Jesus came and died on the cross, David, in one of his psalms, he described what death by crucifixion would be like or is like. Now, he didn't use the word crucifixion because they didn't have that word then because nobody knew that word. But a thousand years before the Romans are even thinking about crucifixion, 
David describes what the death of crucifixion was like. How, how did David know that? How did he know that? Only God could have told him. The Bible says in 2 Peter, no prophecy ever originated from humans. In other words, people didn't sit around all day and say, hey, let's think this one up. This one's pretty cool. Instead, it was given by the Holy Spirit as humans spoke under God's direction. Did you know that during the, the biblical times or you know, the Bible times, nobody wanted to be a prophet? It's not like a job people signed up for. You know why? Because the law in Israel said a prophet of God had to be correct 100% of the time. And if you were wrong just once, then you were considered a false prophet and uh, you were put to death. Sign me up. So nobody wanted to be a prophet. I think today there's a lot of people claiming to be a prophet, claiming to be prophets. I believe, you know, there, there are prophets, false prophets, non-prophets, Oh, by the way, here's a pro tip. We're big on pro tips. If you see one of our signs, here's a pro tip. Don't ever trust a psychic who asks you for your name. Just pro tip. I'd say if you're so psychic, you shouldn't have to ask me for my credit card either. You should just know the number. See, the, the Bible is prophetically accurate. Jesus said this in Matthew 26, but all this is happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scripture. Jesus said it's all coming true, just like God predicted. In Revelation 22, John said, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy, meaning you can trust them. You can trust these words and they're true. Why? Because they're from God. The Lord sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. The Bible is prophetically accurate, people. And the odds of all of these prophecies, you know, happening in just the way they did, exactly the way they did over thousands of years is just simply astronomical. The fourth reason, I know that the Bible is trustworthy and true because it's thematically unified. What do we mean by that? It's the same theme throughout the entire book from cover to cover. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the same theme. It's the same theme of redemption from Genesis to the end. Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the star. It is a thematically unified book. So what's the big deal about that? I think you know that a lot of books carry the same theme from beginning to end, but they were written, but uh, are written over six, the, the, with the Bible, these books are written over 1,600 years by 40 different authors. So it's a pretty big deal. This book was written over 1,600 years from the first book to the last by 40 different authors on three different continents. In three different languages. And they didn't know each other. How do you think they got and told the same story? It wasn't even collected in one book until a thousand years later after they died. 
in the Old Testament. I mean, how, how do you think they knew that? It'd be one, it would be one thing if one person wrote the entire book. The Quran was written by one person, Muhammad. The Analects of Confucius are written by Confucius. The writings of Buddha are written by, you guessed it, Buddha. You'd expect them to be uniform and, and cohesive. The, the, the Bible was written by 40 different people in every age and every stage of life. And as I said, on three different continents and three different languages over 1,600 years, they got the same story. They, they told that this book was written by poets and prophets. It was written by princes and kings. It was written by sailors and soldiers. The book was written by attorneys and doctors and MDs. It was written by prisoners. It was written by common people. All kinds of people wrote the Bible, and it was written in all kinds of locations. Some of the Bible was written in a cave. Some of the Bibles were written on ships. Some of the Bible was written in homes. Some of the Bible was written in, in palaces. And some of the Bible was written in prison. And yet, they all come up with the same theme. You've got to be kidding me. It has the same theme of redemption from cover to cover over 1,600 years. You get, you get more, a more diverse group, fishermen and tax collectors and scholars and royalty, businessmen over a period of almost 2,000 years coming up with the same story. It's like if I, if I took 50 sheets of paper and I passed it out to 50 random people in this room and I said, rip this paper and just rip me a piece off this paper in any shape you want. And then I collected the pieces and then I pasted it up on a board behind me and it miraculously uh, looks like a map of the United States. That would... I mean, if I, if I said I was going to do that, you would say, yeah, right. You'd say, dude, you, you got pieces pre-ripped in your sleeve. It's a magic trick. The odds are too astronomical to just accept that those pieces that I collected from you would all fit together in the form of a map of the United States. But the Bible is more than that. It was many places, many people, many centuries, and yet it all fits together with one unified theme. Jesus said in Luke 24, Jesus, beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of the, of the Bible, which are written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the rest of the Old Testament. Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scripture concerning himself. Did you get that? Concerning himself. Most people think that the New Testament is about Jesus and the Old Testament is about Israel. And that's wrong. The New Testament wasn't even written when Jesus said what he just said. It wasn't in existence. He's, when Jesus is saying this, he's talking about the Old Testament. It says he went through all the scriptures and showed what it said about him. The story is about Jesus from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. It's about Jesus. The pictures, the metaphors, the analogies, the illusions, everything in scripture from beginning to end is, is about God's plan to redeem his people and build a family for eternity. It all began with him. The star of the story. 
Jesus himself. You can see Jesus in every single book of the Bible. John 5.39, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Remember, the New Testament wasn't written when he said this. He's talking about the Old Testament. All, all scripture points to him. Speaking of Jesus, the fifth way, and I'm going to kind of blow through this for you. The fifth way I can trust the Bible is because it's confirmed by Jesus. See, Jesus trusted the Bible. You may have heard someone say, or may have thought, yeah, I trust that Jesus guy, but I'm not quite sure about those other guys. Jesus, I, I, I'm cool with. The other guys, I'm not so sure. But here's the challenge to that. Jesus trusted the rest of the Bible. So if you trust Jesus, if I trust Jesus, then I have to trust the rest of the Bible. Because Jesus trusted the rest of the Bible. Jesus proclaimed the Bible as a unique book above all other books. Matthew 5.18 said, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus looks at the Bible and he says, this is going to last until the end of time. And it will accomplish what God wants to accomplish in his word. In John 10.35, Jesus said, scripture is always true. Listen, I'm not making this up. It's not my paraphrase. It's the word of God. Scripture is always true. Jesus proclaimed the truth of the Bible. And when Jesus talks about the truth of the Bible, I, you, we, we have to listen. We have to listen. When Jesus says that every sentence and word of the Bible is true, that's why I believe that every sentence and every word of the Bible is true. Because Jesus said it. When Jesus talks about the Bible, he just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't just talk about poetry and history. He talks about it as something that's life-changing. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and do what? Obey it. Do it. Not just read it for like poetry and, you know, to put on a coffee mug or a t-shirt. Do it. Obey it. Why? Because God wrote it. He wrote it into our lives. When Jesus talks about the Bible, he talks about it being a real book with real people, real places by a real God who's at work in lives. Do it. The sixth reason you can trust the Bible as an absolute authority word of God that is God-breathed, is that the Bible has survived all attacks. That makes this a very unusual book. The Bible is the most despised, the most derided, the most denied, the most disputed, the most dissected, the most debated, the most outlawed, the most destroyed, the most banned book in all of history. Millions of people have died because they refused to give up their Bible. People uh, uh, were killed because it was illegal. It's still illegal in some countries. Today, if you bring a Bible into the country of North Korea, you can be imprisoned and possibly uh, uh, put to death. The Bible has been under attack for centuries in every direct, from every direction that, that you can imagine. Yet, it is, still one of, it, it is still the most read book 
in the world. It is still the most published book in the world, the most translated book in the world, the, most, the best-selling book in the world, and it's still making a difference in people's lives today. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. The only thing on this planet that's going to last is the word of God. It's eternal. Everything else is going to burn up, but the word of God is eternal because truth lasts forever. I don't know if you guys know this dude named Voltaire way back when. Voltaire is a famous French philosopher. Voltaire was an atheist. He wrote a number of tracts deriding the Bible. It was his mission. Voltaire made a very famous statement, a very famous statement in which he said, 100 years from today, the Bible will be a forgotten book. Everybody's forgotten that quote. After Voltaire died for nearly 100 years, his homestead was used as a book depository for the French Bible Society. Get this, they sold Bibles out of his home, out of his house. See the irony? See, people have forgotten Voltaire, but nobody's forgotten the Bible. Heaven and earth shall pass away. My word will never pass away. 1 Peter 1, 24, 25 says, The grass withers and the flowers fall. In other words, words are temporary stuff. It just wilts. Today's news is worthless tomorrow, or worthless tomorrow. You don't read last week's headlines. They aren't worth anything. The temporary stuff doesn't last. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of God does what? Stands forever. The truth will always be the truth. Whether I believe it or not, it's the truth. I could say I believe the moon is made out of cheese. We know and it's proven that the moon is not made out of cheese. It's made out of rock. We've brought back rocks from the moon, not cheddar. So no matter how much I say I believe the moon is made out of cheese, it doesn't change the fact that it's still made out of rocks. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker that said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it? That's not the best way to say that. Because really what we ought to say is, God said it, that settles it, whether I believe it or not. Because whether I believe it or not doesn't change it at all. The fact is, there are a lot of things that are true. I don't want them to be true. I mean, so I can say I don't believe it because I don't want them to be true. But it doesn't make them not true. We can say we don't don't want something to be called immoral. But it doesn't matter what we want. What God says is moral is moral. What God says is not moral is not moral. It's not our choice. He is God. We are not. I could say to you, I don't believe in the law of gravity. I mean, hey, listen, gravity's fine for you, but for me, I don't believe in it. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. You do you and I'll do me. I just don't believe in the law of gravity. 
So you and I go up to the Empire State Building to test this theory. I say, hey, listen, I don't believe in the law of gravity. It applies to me because I don't believe in it. So I jump off the Empire State Building. And as I'm floating down at a rather rapid speed, about the hundredth floor, a guy looks out the window and says, hey, George, how's it going? So far, so good. And I think that's the way that most people are living their lives. God gives us freedom to totally thumb our noses and, and, uh, and rebel against him our entire life. But see, that, that's not the end of the story. You see, you can run from God. You can spend your whole life running from God. But eventually, you won't be able to run from God anymore. The truth is, you're going to come face to face with God one day, whether you believe in him or not. And all the, well, I don't believe in him. I don't believe he exists. Isn't going to stop that event from happening. Now back to the Empire State Building story. The truth is at some point, my face is going to hit the ground. Which illustrates another truth. You don't break God's laws. They break you. When I ignore what God says in his inspired, inerrant, infallible word, when I ignore what he says and I go, oh, I, I hear you, but I just don't like that part, so I'm not going to believe it. I only hurt myself. You know, listen, I, I don't believe in I know there's crap, but I don't believe in it, so therefore the laws don't apply to me. I die. I don't hurt God. I only hurt myself. And the last one is, why can I believe the, and, and this is the most subjective, but it's the one that I've personally seen the most. Why can I trust the Bible? Because it has life-transforming power. Nothing can change lives, like, lives of people like the Bible. Your life has been changed by it. Tens of thousands of lives have been changed by it. Many of us have seen people do a complete 180 in their lives because of it. People who are fully transformed from terrible behavior and utter selfish choices. And it all started with reading the Bible. I'm almost done. Listen, if I thought I could change human behavior by laws, I would have become a politician and not a pastor. But I don't have faith in politics to actually change the greatest problems on this planet. Because you can't make all the laws in, laws in the world, I mean, you can make all the laws in the world, but it isn't going to change the heart. You can, you can make a law that out, you can make a law that outlaws racism and bigotry, but no law is going to turn a bigot into a lover. God's got to do that. God's got to change the heart. I've invested my life in the heart-changing business, and I've seen it happen. I've seen lives transformed because of this book right here. Lives are changed, transformed because of what God wrote in this book.
People who you thought would never, ever change, changed because of this book. Jesus said it like this in John 8, verse 31, 32. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And this is a famous portion of this verse that most people, and you shall know the truth and the truth will what? Make you free. I want you to be free, people. You know what the most amazing thing is? Secular, secular universities all around this nation, all around the world, have the second part of this verse plastered on the side of a building or above the door. And the truth will make you free. The problem is they ignored God and ignored the Bible. They forget the first part. It says, if you continue in my word... If you continue in my word, you will know the truth. You will know the truth. And in turn, the truth will make you free. Not just, not just if you go out and make up your own opinion or write a post on the socials. Then you'll be free. If you continue in my word, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth. You want to know the truth? Are you feeling devoid of truth? Then Continue in my word. Because this book never lies to you, even when I don't like what it says, even when I disagree with it, even when it hurts, even when I don't fully understand it, even when it's complicated, even when it's uncomfortable, it will always tell me the truth. That's why it's called the Holy Bible. Let me ask you this. Do you believe everything you read online? No. Do you believe everything you watch on TV? Do you believe everything you read in People Magazine? That's for my wife. No. Do you believe everything on TikTok? Yes. Don't. It's amazing how many cures you can find for the common ailments on TikTok. If we don't believe that, then why do we spend so much time reading and watching and scrolling through stuff we know is a lie? Then reading what we know to be the truth. The fundamental question, the most important question we're going to have to ask ourselves in this life is what is going to be the final authority in my life? You need to decide that today, and I recommend you decide now. Is it going to be the word, or is it going to be the world? Is it going to be the world, or is it going to be the word? Am I going to listen to what God says is true, or am I going to listen to public opinion or how I feel right now? Who's going to be the authority in my life, God or me? Because when I say, I don't really accept this book, we can say that. I don't really accept this book. It's not that we can't accept it. You know what it is? We don't want to accept it. We are all capable of accepting this book. But if we're being honest with ourselves, some of us may not want to accept it. And the reason we don't want to accept it as our authority is because I want to be the boss. 
I want to be Lord. I want to be God of my own life. And I don't want God telling me what's right and wrong. I don't want God telling me what's moral and immoral. I want to do it my way. I want to be in control. I want to be Lord. So let me ask you this. How's that working for you? Is it solving all of your life's problems? Has your stress level and anxiety and worry and irritation vanished because you're God? And if you're God and you're in charge, how's that working for your life? Everything, is everything turning out the way you want it to? Are you exactly where you want to be? I think the answer to that is, I don't think so. To rebel against God is flat out stupidity. You're not going to win that battle. Your arms are too short to box with God. I know because I've tried. So the big question is, what's going to be the final authority in your life? Why is the inerrancy and infallibility and the flawlessness of God's word so important? Because if this book is not true, then we are in a heap of trouble. Because my salvation, your salvation depends on this book being right. And, and this book tells us that our life is not an accident. Science tells you that. Science tells you that your life is an accident. This book tells you that there is an overarching purpose for your life. Science doesn't tell you that. This book says that God made you to love you. This is the book that says you can be forgiven. This is the book that says your past can be forgiven and you can have purpose for living and you can have a home in heaven. This book says that no matter what problem you go through, God can use it for good in your life. This book says that there is a reason for hope. This book says, this book, if this book is alive, we're in a heap of trouble because this is the book that tells you how to, to get to heaven. The Bible says in Romans 12, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world. It's talking about the world's way of thinking, the world's worldview, the opinions and the attitudes of this world. It says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, the truth is you're either a conformist or you're a transformist. You either conform or you're transformed. You either conform to the ways of this world or the way the world thinks, or you're transformed by God's truth. Then you'll be able to test. You'll be able to know. And that, when we know, that's how we make good decisions and to prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. The Bible says, or, uh, God's plan for your life is good. God's plan for your life is pleasing, and God's plan for your life is perfect. But you're only going to know that through God's word. I want you to settle this issue today, to accept the Bible as, as a flawless word, as the final authority of your life. Because if you don't, 
then you're basically making your own opinions. You're setting yourself up as the authority. And I want to ask you again, how's that working out for your life? Do you find it to be pretty effective? I'd like to invite you to pray this prayer with me now, and you could say it in your mind. You don't have to say it out loud. Dear God, from this day forward, I will accept the Bible as your flawless word, your word to me. I pray, Father, you, you give me the ability to make it the final authority in my life, not just what social media says, not what popularity says, not what I feel like doing or what I think sounds best. Father, I'm going to make this, I'm going to make the Bible, your word, the final authority in my life, even when I don't understand it, Father, even when it's not popular, even when it's not easy, even when I don't like it, because you are God and I'm not. Thank you, Father, for loving me, loving me enough to speak through your word. Thank you that you are not silent. Thank you that you spoke through uh, about 40 men and women over 1,600 years on three different continents and three languages to tell me one story that you wanted me in your family and you wanted me to know you and that you made me for a purpose. Thank you, Father, that you are not silent, that you are still active in our lives. I want to love your word. I want to learn your word. And I want to live your word. Father, I pray for those of us who are in the 40 days small groups, that you use 40 days in our lives to set us on the right path. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, amen. Amen. Listen, friends, one thing I want you to do, if you have not signed up for a small group, I want you to go to guest services and I want you to sign up today. Uh, My friend Diane will give you all the information you need. And then also, I want to congratulate and say thank you to everyone who is hosting. If you're hosting a group, can you raise your hand? Can we give those individuals a big round of applause? Keep, if you're hosting, keep your hands up real quick. I want everybody to look around and see them. Look around and see those who have their hands raised. Do these people look super spiritual to you? No. They just look normal. Just like you and me. The point is, this this 40 days in the Word is for every single one of us. You don't have to know the Bible to be a part of a group. I promise you, it will change your life. Sign up today. Now, uh, we're going to close our time as we're going to do each week with taking a look at our memory verse for the week. And I promise you, it won't be this much information in one shot as we continue. I just had to get a lot. I, I warned you. We had to get a lot out today. It's good stuff. Um, take a look at the screen. Colossians 3.16 is our memory verse for this week. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, remember, to memorize, you always say the reference, Colossians 3.16, before and at the end, and you say it out loud. And because how do we learn? We learn orally, right? Uh, Repetition and repeating things. So let's practice and read this verse out loud together. Say the reference. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Colossians 3.16. Good job. Step one. You guys are ready for your small groups. So uh, guys, I want you to memorize that verse this week. Take 60 seconds 
and, and really uh, throughout your day and, and ingrain that into your memory. And I'm excited for what God's going to do. You're loved. Have a great week. We'll see you at your small groups. Uh, I'll see you.